Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 15th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... There's so much that comes over the border. There's no way you can expect it all. Actually, the FDA and uh, USDA inspect only about 1% of all incoming food shipments. That's Scientific American editor Mark Fischetti, and we'll hear from him this week about food safety and also about the state of the city of New Orleans. We'll also talk with TV producer Jackie Mao about a big dog show premiering this week. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Mark Fischetti. He's one of the editors at Scientific American and the author of the article, Is Your Food Contaminated?, that appears in the September special issue of Scientific American, all about food, eating, obesity, and nutrition. He also wrote an article about what could happen to New Orleans in a powerful enough hurricane years before Katrina hit, and we talk a bit about that, too. We spoke in the library at Scientific American. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hey, Steve. Good. So the article's called, Is Your Food Contaminated? Is my food contaminated? Well, I hope not, personally. Um, however, there's a... Seems to be a greater chance uh, that it could be, or at least a greater awareness these days that it might be. Why uh, Why have we waited until now for that awareness to become as great as it is? Well, I think there's probably two factors. Um, there's a much greater focus on terrorism these days, so people are thinking more widely about how um, we could be affected, so tampering the food supply is, is a scenario that's being looked at more. And also, um, because of uh, a lot of recent events uh, involving imported food, a lot of um, cases of recalls and of poisonings, that has just raised everybody's awareness. I'm uh, personally more concerned about mayonnaise left out in the sun than about terrorism when it comes to my food. Is that uh, is that a rational attitude? I think it's rational, yeah. There's, um, st- statistically, your chances of, of eating something bad for you are, are definitely, um, higher, um, greater chance that it's a natural pathogen, uh, due either to bad handling practices amongst preparers, um, or even homeowners. And also, um, because more and more food is being processed centrally. So if a problem occurs at some step along the process, it's um, more and more uh, readily spread to a wide uh, variety of end, end um, sellers and users. When you say more food is being processed centrally, does that mean, you know, if I buy chicken wings in New York or chicken wings in San Antonio or chicken wings in San Francisco, they might have all come through the same giant chicken wing factory? Very, very likely, yeah. More and more likely, in fact, and it applies to um, eggs, milk, meat, uh, all sorts of uh, different kinds of foods. To, to what extent is that the case? I mean, how most people probably think that they're still buying food that's fairly locally produced, but is pretty much everything or the majority of things that we buy in our local supermarket going through some series of vast clearing houses somewhere most likely yes um it, it's it's really gotten to the point where um even grocery store chains if they do have local produce or even regional produce they promote it as some some desired quality um um also uh, imports are 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 increasing vastly i believe it's um the us imports 5 times as much food as it has uh, only 10 years ago. Five times as much as 10 years ago. What has, what has been responsible for that explosion in imported food? Uh, I think it's basic economics. Um, 
cost less. Um, that's where um, uh, the large manufacturers or producers go to get it. What do we do to ensure uh, at the at the I guess at the corporate level really that food that we're bringing in is safe before it's distributed for retail sale? Yeah, it's a big issue. Um, uh, there's so much that comes over the border. There's no way you can expect it all. Actually, the FDA and uh, USDA inspect only about 1% of all incoming food shipments. And that's what makes it a corporate issue. Sure, right. So so who's going to be responsible? Certainly not going to be the government inspectors. There's just not nearly enough of them. Um, so it sort of falls on the importers or really more so the people whose uh, brand names are on the products to go to their suppliers in the other countries and say, we're the, we're the ones who stand to lose the most. Uh, if it's if it's a uh, dull pineapple that's tainted, dull is is going to take the rap. So it's uh, it's really incumbent upon them to go to their suppliers and say we're we're going to demand these certain levels of uh, safety and procedures and even testing. Otherwise, we're not going to buy from you. Talk about um, there's a specific mention in your article um, that that gets into a little bit about the, the the bureaucratic problems with food inspection the pizza scenarios yeah right um, there are uh, some say 12 some say 13 I guess nobody really knows how many uh, government agencies have some hand in regulating food um, food safety and the the regulations uh, fall such that the FDA, regulates pizza with cheese on it, but the USDA regulates pizza if it has meat on it. It's just one example of uh, that shows the sort of the Byzantine government structure that's involved, and yet they're still only inspecting certain small quantities of food. So obviously what we need is a is a pizza inspection unit of the government. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> that inspects all pizza regardless. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, the technology that uh, – is being developed to protect food. You, you've got, for example, everybody's probably seen those uh, those tags that are on clothing, so that you don't shoplift clothing. Right, right. But you got edible tags. Yeah, um, there, there's actually quite a lot of research going on. Um, I, and the point is that if you can't stop uh, some food from being tainted, whether it's natural or or, or um, deliberate. The second best thing you could do is at least find it early and track it quickly back to where it came from so that you can stop its spread to millions and millions of uh, consumers. So there's a, a number of levels of technology that are being uh, experimented with. The big one is RFID tags, uh, those little sort of barcode-looking tags that, that are, in fact, <laughs> attached to clothing and other items that would be read uh, during each step along the process so that if there's a recall or if there's a finding of, of um, some sort of contamination, that you can read the tags on all the boxes of whatever that food happened to be quickly to know where it came from and know if you've got a bad batch. Then you also talk about active packaging. That's really interesting. Right. Um, so think about a package of ground beef. Um, the big worry is always E. coli. And uh, if you've got, you know, that cellophane that's uh, wrapped around the, the uh, beef, if it has a, a, a layer or a window in the cellophane that's sensitive to E. coli, if it comes in contact with E. coli, it would, say, turn from clear to red so that everybody would know right away, hey, there's this, this package is contaminated. How soon would we be able to see something like that in, in local grocery stores? Well, um, RFID tags are actually being used now in, in pilot programs 
Um, the cellophane, uh, that active packaging that's still, still in a research stage. Um, you mentioned earlier edible tags. There are, there are systems now that you can print, um, really, really tiny, um, uh, brands or codes or letters on edible, uh, items. So on fruit, on lettuce, and the tags are made out of cellulose, you know, sort of, um, materials that you can eat and digest with no problem. So that would, that's sort of another level. That's, that's actually been done experimentally, but commercially it's, it's not being used yet. You also talk in the article, uh, a little bit about smart kitchen technology, refrigerators that'll warn you. I mean, right, right now, you know, your nose is your is your warning system. You open up the milk and you say, "Oh, this milk is bad." But your refrigerator might be able to tell you that certain things have gone bad. Yeah, it's not, not something I thought of initially, but um, as I was talking to more people, um, this one one big program at Ohio State University is to design smart appliances um, as kind of the last line of defense. Let's say you do have a package in your possession that's contaminated um, or recall goes out. Um, you could have a refrigerator that's got a scanner built into it so that you pass the food under the scanner. It reads the label and tells you, hey, uh, recall is just issued for this package of beef. Um, other sensors could be in, in microwave ovens or regular conventional ovens. Um, an infrared sensor that uh, can tell you the temperature of the inside of the meat you're cooking. You know, you're supposed to cook meat to 170 degrees or whatever the recommendation is. Well, how do you know that? Um, an infrared sensor could tell you automatically. Of course, uh, you could also grow your own vegetables in your backyard if you have a backyard. Yes, you could. And uh, those will probably be safe. <laughs> so uh, you're also our, our New Orleans expert. You wrote the article... Well before Hurricane Katrina came in and smacked New Orleans around, you had an article in our magazine three years before? Uh, four years four before, years actually, before, yeah. That when you read that article after Katrina, it sounds like you were reporting on what Katrina actually did. This yeah, right. article warning what the possibilities were with the, with the right scenario. So, uh, we're now two years after Katrina, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is going on there? Well, the um, the levees in and around New Orleans, as of let's say the spring, um, were all repaired by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers back to their original design spec, as they like to say. Um, so that's good. Um, the bad news is that the original design spec was. Uh, to prevent against a Category 3 hurricane. Katrina was uh, four, kind of fading to a three when it hit New Orleans, um, and you see how well they held up to that. Um, but more problematically is um, the like the city and like the surrounding areas, the levees are slowly subsiding. So even though they've been built back up to what they were before, the whole system is slowly subsiding. So the whole system actually doesn't really give you a hurricane level three protection anymore. So it did the minute that they finished the reconstruction, but it started to decay immediately. Well, it, I mean, the system's been sinking all along that, you know, some of those levees are decades and decades old. So, um, just repairing them to their old height, uh, the whole system has sunk. And so you don't really have even category three protection there. So the article that you wrote four years between, before Katrina is now just as prescient as it ever was. Yeah, sorry to say. Um, and, and the, the, the sort of two bottom lines to that one is, um, the natural wetland, 
system in the in the delta which is vast has just been really um torn apart by human development and uh to some degree uh natural forces so that has really eliminated the natural buffer and short of rebuilding that which would be uh, a decades long process um we've got to do some uh you've got to raise some sort of structure whether it's a wall halfway between the city and the sea or a wall at the edge of the sea to hold back storm surges and just general wave action because that's going to continue to make the natural barriers worse. And what's the progress, if any, on that? Really none. Um, the, the Army Corps of Engineers is doing its own study. Um, uh, there's been various groups of scientific societies and engineering groups have gotten together to propose plans. Um, and those two sets of plans that I mentioned, the sort of the wall halfway to the sea and the wall at the sea, are, are sort of generally agreed upon by all these groups as the, as the likely options, but it's it's only gotten to that stage. They're, they haven't uh, done any sort of engineering studies, certainly, and, and there's certainly no funding or commercial impetus that says, yes, we're actually going to build these things. So the plan right now is let's hope it doesn't happen again? Yep. Yep, definitely. I mean, the, the Army Corps has presented plans to Congress. You know, they have to, they have to actually make a pitch to Congress to get money, to get funding each year, to start to raise some of the local levies. But, you know, all of that is just around the city proper. Um, uh, does nothing to protect the whole outlying structure. And, um, the Army Corps' fundamental plan says, in addition to raising levies, they need to build physical structures, gates across um, inlets to the big lake north of the city, across all these navigation channels through the city. These are tremendous structures that actually have been built in places like the Netherlands. Um, but their earliest estimate for being able to build those structures in the key places where the flooding occurred in Katrina would be 2011, 2012. So it's a long time still. Mark's article, again, is called, Is Your Food Contaminated? It's in the September single-topic issue of Scientific American, all about food, obesity, and nutrition. It's available at newsstands and in digital form on our website, www.siam.com. We'll be right back. Science Video News, now at siam.com. Easy to view and updated three times a day. Video News, just a click away at siam.com slash video. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, squirrels can heat up their tails, which warns heat-sensitive rattlesnakes to keep away. Story two, speaking of rattlesnakes, a farmer in central Washington state suffered a bad bite by a rattlesnake that the farmer had already killed and decapitated. Story three, a couple in New Zealand are threatening to name their baby para-amino-dimethylbenzaldehyde because their original name choice was rejected by the government. And story four, a new GPS device is built into a dog collar so you can track your dog. We'll be back with the answer, but first, speaking of dogs, there's a new TV show about dog science. Jackie Mao is a science journalist who produced, directed, and co-wrote the program, which debuts on August 15th on the National Geographic Channel's show Explorer. For a sneak preview, I called Jackie at her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Jackie. How are you? Hey, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. So tell us about this show that you've been so intimately involved with. Uh, well, I just came off a show called uh, The Science of Dogs, and it's all about dogs and what makes them so amazing. 
And and what makes dogs so amazing? Well, dogs, unlike other domesticated animals, have this huge variety. They're, they're like the two-pound chihuahua and the 240-pound mastiff and the seven-foot um, Great Dane. Uh, a domesticated pig looks like a pig, and a domesticated cat looks like a cat. So, but the dog has this enormous variety and everything in between. What are the most interesting scientific aspects of the domestic dog that you have uh, that you learned about while you were working on this program? Well, we found out they were looking at the dog genome, and they sequenced the dog genome about five uh, years ago. And there's one scientist in particular who is looking at these tandem repeats, which is repeated letters in the dog, dog genome, but they also exist in the human genome and other animals. But the dog in particular um, um, is able to copy these um, tandem repeats um, fairly easily, their genome. And so what happens is they can mutate really quickly. So most dogs uh, were created only 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago, in the Victorian era of um, in England. And what happened was all these um, middle-class people, they all of a sudden had a lot of money, and they wanted a hobby, so they decided they would start breeding dogs. And, for example, this happened also in Germany and France and later in, a, in the U.S., but, you know, the um, Doberman Pinscher, for example, was a dog that was created during that era, and it happened over a very, very short amount of time. So there's something unusual about the dog genome that lends itself to a lot of uh, plasticity in in how many breeds you can get in a short amount of time compared to other animals? Yeah, absolutely. And this happens also in other canids, in wolves, um, jackals, coyotes. They found also this this slip, what they, they call a slippery genome. It, it can um, create these tandem repeats easily. And, and so that's why, um, unlike cats, uh, cats don't have it. So once you're once removed from the canid species, you don't see that that kind of slippery genome. The canid species, C-A-N-I-D, and that, that's a, a taxonomic classification for all these kinds of dog and dog-related yeah. animals. Exactly. So uh, the, the program debuts on the 15th? It debuts on the 15th. It premieres on August 15th at 8 o'clock p.m. on the National Geographic Channel. 8 p.m. Eastern. 8 p.m. Eastern Pacific Time. And then it repeats on... Um, August 18th, that's Saturday, at 7 o'clock p.m., and then it will repeat again the following week. Terrific. Thanks, Jackie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. The Science of Dogs premieres August 15th. To see a preview, go to channel.nationalgeographic.com slash channel slash explorer. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, hot tail sends squirrel keep-away signal to rattlesnakes. Story two, dead rattlesnake bites man. Story three, chemical compound baby name. And story four, dog GPS device. Time's up. Story one is true. Squirrels warn off heat-sensitive rattlers by waving their heated tails at them, especially at night. For more, check out the August 14th episode of the Daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. Story two is true. The farmer was bitten by the dead snake. 
and had to get emergency treatment. Rattlesnakes dead for an hour can still bite and do a lot of damage. For more, check out J.R. Minkle's August 10th edition of News Bites of the Week, B-Y-T-E-S, at the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. And story four is true. The new Garmin Astro is a GPS unit that lets you keep track of your dog, according to U.S. News & World Report. The $600 unit has a range of five miles, so it's really designed for hunters who want to track their dog while the dog tracks whatever the dog is tracking. For broader ID purposes, you can have a tiny barcode ID placed under your dog's skin. They also sell an inexpensive unit that goes around the, the dog's neck on one end, you hold the other end. I, I understand that works really well. All of which means that story three about a New Zealand couple threatening to name their baby para-amino-dimethylbenzaldehyde is totally bogus. What is true, though, is that the couple wants to name their baby Superman as a fallback because their first choice, for real, the numeral four followed by the word real, was rejected by the government as an unsuitable baby name, as according to the New Zealand Herald. The still unnamed babies now two months old. You know, Kal-El is a nice name, and if you're going to use a number for your baby's name, you got to stick with George Costanza's choice, seven. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. And by the way, I'm a guest on another popular podcast that debuts Saturday, August 18th, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. We recorded that show last week. It was a lot of fun. And you can check it out at iTunes and at www.theskepticsguide.org. And check out their archives for the recent episode with former President Jimmy Carter about his alleged UFO sighting incident. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 